Jesus, we thank you for the words you've given us here in Matthew 16. We thank you that we're able to gather to study your word and to worship you. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth in your word and, and ears to hear it and, and give us a sensitive heart to see where, where you're calling us to more radical discipleship than what we've maybe previously understood. Give us the grace to be humble and looking inward and recognize areas where we've fallen short and where we need your grace to continue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hadn't planned to get started this morning with some kind of a story or introduction. I was going to dive in because there's a lot in Matthew 16. Uh, but we had this sort of perfect opportunity for an illustration come in yesterday morning with our family. And so I'm going to take that as a sign from the sovereignty of God that I should sort of pull back the curtain on Cook family life. And uh, we were supposed to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house yesterday. And so I, I told our girls, hey, the last thing we got to do, I'd, I'd like to take over to Grandma and Grandpa's, you need to clean up the playroom. And those of you that um, have been in that scenario before know that that always results in uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and great darkness <laughs> covering the face of the earth. And so, um, so I said to them, I said, well, you know what? If you don't want to clean up, that's okay. You don't have to. And all of a sudden, it was happy again. It was like the clouds rolled back. I said, but if you don't want to clean up, then we're not going to go to grandma's house. Oh, no. What am I going to do, right? And they said, okay, we can clean up, Dad. We can figure it out, right? And actually, the cleanup went really, really great from there because they realized the joy of going to Grandma's house was worth the pain of cleaning up right now, and so let's do this, and we got to go over, and, and it was a good time. Um, what, what did I invite them to do there? I invited them to raise their eyes. Like, hey, quit seeing this little thing in front of you. It's going to take like seven minutes, and if you'll just work hard for seven minutes, you can have like four hours at Grandma's house, and it'll be so worth it. Right? And so in, in a similar way, like cleaning up and going to grandma's house requires you to, to raise your eyes above the toys that need to be cleaned and live in light of the joy at grandma's house. Similarly, Jesus is going to invite us to raise our eyes today and recognize that confessing Jesus as Lord requires you to raise your eyes above the things of man and live in light of the things of God. So if there's anything I want you to walk away from this morning, it's I need to, as you see on the screen, raise my eyes. You need to raise your eyes. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And so the, the text of Matthew 16 is kind of a narrative that unfolds in three acts, you might say. So that's kind of how we'll organize the outline of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and just see how the plot unfolds and what Jesus calls, to, calls us to throughout. Act 1, then, is Peter's great confession. This is verses 13 through 20. Peter's confession. Let's go back and, and read it again just to um, ground ourselves in the word of God. We read starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So right at the outset, we find that they're in this area called Caesarea Philippi. Just see a map on the screen here. This area is massively significant that they're in Caesarea Philippi. A couple of things to note. One, it's a 25-mile hike from where they were at the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. That, that should indicate to us there's great intentionality in where we're at. It's not just like, oh, we happen to cruise over from Brownsburg into Fayette, right? We had to work to get here. There's something really significant that's going to come on. So we're going to go back to that over and over. But also notice, what's the name of, Caesarea Philippi is in parentheses. Paneus is the, the other name for that area, and that'll be significant as well. So we're going to come back to that at, at multiple points, but it's important that we kind of see the story unfold as it did in its original context before we start to draw application to ourselves. As they get to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, 
hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say he is? And this title, Son of Man, is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He would, he would use it in reference to himself some 82 times in the Gospels, 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. It's pulling from some Old Testament themes, specifically Daniel 7, and saying, I am this long-awaited, long-promised Son of Man. He preferred this title because it emphasized his humanity, his lowliness, his humiliation. See, even Jesus, even Jesus would raise his eyes and see, I must be understood as a lowly king in order to see my purposes accomplished. This, of course, would be in contrast to the religious expectations of the day. Right? A conquering king, not a son of man, not a humble king, not a lowly king, not a king to be humiliated. No, that, that's not the expectation. Now, some have used this phrase, son of man, that Jesus uses and tried to twist his words and say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. He never claimed to be deity. See, he didn't even call himself son of God. He called himself son of man. Maybe you've heard something along those lines. What, what do we say to that? We say, no, just read the next verse. So some say that you're a good teacher. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. There's no doubt about who I am. I was long promised going back into the prophets. Even Daniel 7 calls me the son of man. And Peter, you're right. This is who I am. He says, Peter, this was revealed to you not by your own intelligence, not by your own ability to reason things out and search the scriptures, not by your own hard work. It was revealed to you by the Father. Isn't this interesting what Jesus says there? It's a lesson to us in seeing the beauty of human responsibility and divine sovereignty come together. Peter must confess that Jesus is the Christ. We must proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet God is the sovereign one to reveal who he is and to convict of sin. These can never be separated. They always go together. We are responsible to do exactly what God has laid out, and he is sovereign to complete his work. Two truths must be held in tension at all times there. But Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, they were in Caesarea Philippi, the area known as Paneus. The, the Greek god Pan was the god of nature. And so Jesus takes his disciples to an area that worships the, the rocks and the soil, literally dead things, and in the, the house of worshiping Dead things, Jesus said, or Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You stand above any pagan rituals, any place that someone would come and offer worship. Jesus, you are above it because you're the son of the, the living God. And you truly can transform and bring life. You see, it's, it's not just random that they happen to be in Caesarea Philippi. No, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. saying, I stand out above any other God that the secular culture from 2,000 years ago may have put forward or any God that the secular culture today puts forward. I alone am worthy of worship, he says. I do wonder, though, in light of the, the human responsibility on the one hand and that God is the one who's sovereignly revealing himself on the other hand, are you doing your part this morning to fulfill your human responsibility? Are you proclaiming the gospel to those in your life that don't know Christ? Are you going to be with somebody this weekend that doesn't know him? There'll be plenty of temptation to talk about other things. Proclaim Christ and him crucified, the son of the living God where there's true hope. Amen? And urge God to reveal himself to them. Beg him. Come to him in prayer earnestly, fiercely asking, save my friends, Jesus. Father, reveal yourself to my family. Or are you passive in your prayer life? Taking a back seat, not fulfilling what God has called you to. Don't let those truths become divorced. As Act 1 continues to develop, there's a confession that Jesus is the Christ, 
And then there's a, a necessary, a required link from confessing Jesus as Christ to the call and how you must live your life. And that call has just begun to tease out in Act 1, and then Act 2 and 3, it'll be further teased out. But at the end of Act 1, there's, there's two sort of tricky phrases for us that start to connect the, the links of the chain, as it were, from the confession to the call on how you live. All right, so let's, let's take a look at a couple of these tricky phrases, what they mean, and continue on through the rest of Act 1. And The first is that Jesus says, hey, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Who's the rock? That's the question. Some people have suggested that it's Peter. It's what the Roman Catholic Church has said, uh, but others have said it as well because Jesus kind of goes into this word play where the word for Peter sounds similar to the word for rock. And so it's like, Peter, you're the rock. Are you the rock on which I build the church? And the answer is no. Peter's not the rock on which the church is built. Christ is the rock on which the church is built. Let me expand that a bit further this word rock appears 12 times in the New Testament, 12 times. Every single time it appears, it's in reference to Christ, okay? Every time. Later in Matthew, the very next chapter, you go to the transfiguration, and Jesus goes up on the mountain, reveals himself, and here's Peter along, and, and in the middle of this great transfiguration on the mountain, and what does Peter do? He says, like a, almost like a, Junior high boy, sorry, junior high boys that are here. He gets like excited the most. Hey, it's a great idea, Jesus. Let's go camping. And all the rest of the disciples are like, Durr, Peter, what are you doing there, buddy? Like, Jesus is revealing himself. We're not going camping right now. Like, don't lose the moment. It's, it's not exactly rock-like activity we're getting from Peter, right? And of course, you know the rest of the gospels of what would happen if Peter would deny Christ three times. Well, Christ is the rock. In case there was any confusion, we could just, we could hope that maybe Peter would tell us what he thought about the matter. Like maybe Peter would write an epistle to some friends. He did. Why don't we look at what Peter said? That's a great, it's on the screen. Let's take a look. First Peter chapter two. Look what Peter writes about the matter. He says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says Christ is the rock. He's the cornerstone. He's the one on which the church is built. So who's the rock? It's Christ. But then in verse 19, Jesus enters into this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. What in the world is going on here? What does that mean? All right, so, so keys to the kingdom has the implication of there's some authority being given to Peter. Right? You give somebody your keys, you're giving them authority over something. Authority over your car, your house while you're gone, that there's authority being given over. Now, the next time we see this keys of the kingdom language used is just in chapter 18. It's one page over in my Bible. I'd encourage you to turn over. Actually, it's two pages in mine. I'm sorry. Matthew 18, verse 18. This is in the context of church discipline. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same thing, binding and loosing. What's going on here? Matthew 16, keys of the kingdom, what you bind will be bound, what you loose will be loosed. Matthew 18, what you bind will be bound, what you loose will be loosed. Right? In Matthew 16, you have Jesus seeing Peter make the right confession. You're a true confessor making the right confession. You are my follower. You're one of mine. In Matthew 18, you see this binding loosing. Then in the, the other end of that, of someone who says they've gone through the church discipline process and they've been found to not truly be a Christian. So you see bookending of when you say you are a Christian and when you're not truly a Christian. Matthew 16, 18. And so what, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, I'm giving you as the church the authority to recognize, yes, this is a true and a credible profession of faith. We're going to welcome you into the church. 
And he's saying, Peter, I'm giving the church the authority to recognize that if a person continues in unrepentant sin and an individual goes to them and says, hey, turn from your sin, brother, turn from your sin, sister, and they don't listen, they won't repent, they continue on. And then a group of people go, say, no, I won't listen to them, I won't repent, I won't turn back. And then the whole church goes, finally saying, Peter, you've got the authority to say, we can no longer believe that your profession of faith is credible. Now, could a church be wrong on any of this? Of course, the church is not the ultimate authority. It's a, what we call a derivative authority, that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's handing off some authority to you. When you go on vacation, you don't hand off your full authority to the house of the neighbors. They've got authority for a time in the way that you grant it to them. Right, so church can be wrong in these things. So when we bring people into church membership, here at Parkside, we do an interview with a pastor or pastors, and we listen for the credibility of their profession of faith in accordance with what Jesus has given to us here. And in church discipline, then, what we're not saying is we don't like you anymore. What we're not saying is you can't come to church here anymore or you can't be part of our club or anything like that. We're saying, no, on the basis of your life, we can no longer affirm the credibility of your profession of faith. This is what the keys of the kingdom, binding, being bound, loosing, being loose, that's what... That means. Obviously, we could, we could go much deeper there. If you have further questions, I'm happy to, to dialogue after. But that, that's what Jesus is getting at. And the larger point that I started with is that the confession of Jesus as Lord has a necessary, a required connection into how we live. First, with how the church is built, and then how it conducts itself. That's act one. Peter confesses and Jesus begins to pull out. Now here's what the confession leads to. Here's what the life should look like. You see, if Jesus were merely a good teacher, as many of the Jewish leaders said, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, then no action would be required. It might be suggested, might be advisable, but not required. But if Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then action is required. It's not optional anymore. And unfortunately, Peter's idea of what that action should look like is grossly misguided. And that's what takes us into Act 2, begin to see what, what this looks like. So Act 2, then, is Peter's correction. Act 1, Peter's confession. Act 2, Peter's correction. Let's look back at the scriptures, read verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's Peter's correction. So we read that Jesus began to show his disciples what must happen. He must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Where is he showing the disciples this from? Well, it's from the only Bible they had at the time, the Old Testament. So in essence, Jesus is opening up the scriptures and beginning to explain from the Old Testament, this is what must happen to me which makes Peter's rebuke all the more fascinating that he, he recognizes I'm with Jesus and the disciples and it's probably not wise to call out Jesus in front of all the disciples. I'm gonna pull him aside. This is a better private conversation. Shouldn't do this one in public. Jesus, come on over. Dude, you don't get it. You don't understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Can I explain this to you? Do you hear the absurdity here? Like I, know, I know that you inspired it and you, you wrote it all and you're God overall, but, but you haven't taken my Bible study on this yet. You've not read the commentary I wrote, Jesus. You should be laughing a little inside at least there. But more seriously, can we note just the absolute subtlety of spiritual arrogance here? Man, if, if it can get Peter and he can be right on who Christ is, but have a massive discipleship gap, you know who else it can happen to? This guy. And every single one of you. In essence, Peter had embraced a gospel of self-fulfillment. 
I'm gonna confess Jesus as Lord, and that's the ticket to get what I want. I don't like this suffering bit, that's not what I'm after. And we see that all over the place in our culture today, don't we? At the extreme end, you see the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel preachers. Jesus wants you happy, he wants you healthy, he wants your 401k booming. And if anything is not quite there, then you've got it wrong. Don't listen to those guys. Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Paula White. Don't go there, okay? But there are other versions that are more subtle, right? There's versions of this self-fulfillment gospel that's more like a self-improvement plan. Maybe you've heard people say things like, well, faith can elevate your performance, or things like following Jesus is the key to a better marriage. Well, technically it's true that faith in God might elevate your performance in a certain way. And if you follow what Jesus has to say about your marriage, it should be a better marriage. But they completely miss the point because the point of Jesus, following Jesus is not that your performance would be elevated. The point is not that your marriage would be better. It's that you would follow Jesus for Jesus' sake. Right? And this is all over the evangelical landscape, all over it, where people are, are basically treating Jesus as a sort of gateway drug for whatever it is that they want on the other side. It's me-centered discipleship, not Jesus-centered discipleship. What's interesting, though, is that in the original context, it's actually a political hope that Peter was after. I told you we'd come back to Caesarea Philippi and the importance therein, right? So let's, let's pause. Let's, let me tell you a little bit more about Caesarea Philippi, and then we'll see how it all connects. Caesarea Philippi was a city that was gifted from Rome to the Jews. It was given by Caesar to Herod, who in turn gave it to his son, Philip. So they literally named it Caesar Philip. Okay, makes sense. And so what, what comes about in this region is this interesting syncretism of political rule from the Romans with religious aspirations from the Jews. And the Jews begin to be frustrated with what's going on, and they understand that the true people of God will be the ones that rise up against the government. They see the corruption and the wickedness in Rome and say, it is our responsibility, we must fight against it. So then when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, Peter's like, whoa, 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 you, you've totally missed it. He's like, you, you don't get how bad they are. You don't get how wicked they are. You don't get what's going to happen to us and to our kids if they continue to be in charge. You can't suffer and die at their hands. You have to destroy them. And this had its hotbed in Caesarea Philippi. Now, isn't this interesting where Jesus chooses as his location for this conversation? What's even more interesting is that within two decades of this conversation that Jesus and Peter have, Peter's cultural analysis proves to be spot on. For an arena would be built in Caesarea Philippi where over 2,500 Christians would be fed to wild animals, torn apart limb by limb. So what Peter anticipated would happen. So if in my mind's eye, I can flip back to that conversation, I can hear Peter saying something like, Jesus, you don't understand. You don't know how wicked they are. They're going to they're gonna kill us. They're threatening behind closed doors to do it, but it's going to get worse. They're going to tell us, tear us apart. They're going to tear our families apart. You can't believe what, Jesus, you can't do this. And he was right that those things would happen. And what does Jesus say to him? He has arguably his harshest critique. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. Peter, you are doing the work of Satan. You are hindering the kingdom of God. Get behind me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. Raise your eyes, Peter. Friend, where are you setting your eyes? Where are you setting your mind? 
Is it on the things of man? Is it on the things of God? It's easy for me, and I know for all of us, in these days, in the political climate we see unfolding in front of us, to set our eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. The prophet Habakkuk said, actually God said through him, I'm doing something in your midst that if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. It's far greater than anything you could imagine. And if I even told you, you wouldn't believe it. I wonder what God's wanting to do in our midst right now. And we're missing it because our eyes are on the things of man and not on the things of God. Let me just share one, one way that we've seen this historically. And you're saying, Justin, how do I reframe my attention? I, I get what you're saying. I see how all this developed. But practically, how do I do this? Maybe, maybe an example from history will be helpful. Take a look at the screen here, on, uh, the map on the screen. In the 1930s, when Japan first began to invade the Korean Peninsula, Hundreds of thousands of Koreans fled from the Japanese imperialism to Russia. The port city of Vladivostok is circled. That was a major landing point for many of the, the Koreans in the 30s. Just imagine what that would have been like for those Koreans, especially for the believers. You've heard terrors of what the Japanese do. You flee for your life across the open sea of Japan, the East Sea, hoping, hoping against hope that you can make it to Russia and find a safe and peaceful existence for your family. Some don't make it, some do, many do. They make it to Vladivostok. And shortly thereafter, do you know what Stalin decides? Stalin decides that Vladivostok should be a military hub for the Russian army, and they can have no one who is not an a, uh, original, that's not the right word, an original Russian, pardon my crassness there. And so anybody who didn't grow up in Mother Russia, a native Russian must be moved. And so you've just fled from Korea for your life, now you're in Stalin's Russia, and you're being deported again. The next slide will show you where they took them. Over 5,000 miles, all the way across Asia to Uzbekistan. About 150,000 Christians are in this group. If you're to pick up from right here and drive to Los Angeles, you're not even halfway there yet. I just want to pause and enter in to the family life of those Korean Christians for a moment. You're coming with your elderly parents, hoping they can make it to Uzbekistan. You're leading your little ones, hoping the journey doesn't kill them. God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Why are you letting the Japanese invade our Korean Peninsula. We ran for our lives and we celebrated that you delivered us. But then why are you letting this guy pick us up and throw us literally halfway across the world into Uzbekistan where they haven't let Christians for hundreds of years because it's a Muslim stronghold and anytime they get close, they kill them. What are you doing, God? The long view of history helps us to see this. Whereas no Christians had previously been able to enter the land of Uzbekistan and neighboring Kazakhstan, with the cover and the safety of Stalin and the Russian army moving them, they're able to settle there. And where previously there had been no gospel witness, no opportunity for the gospel to get in, now 150,000 Korean Christians are planted in the mountainous foothills of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, and revival breaks out. And in 1989, when the Iron Curtain falls, there's already a hotbed of Christianity going such that they're immediately having open-air tent revival meetings and people are coming to Christ in droves because God chose to use Joseph Stalin. 
Guys, I don't know what God's doing in our midst right now. But raise your eyes. Get above what we see right now. No one's suggesting that it's an, an easy road for any of us. It's a road of suffering that Jesus calls us to. But he wants us to fix our eyes on the things of God and not on the things of man. How is it, you might ask, that we hear of God's remarkable activity in East Asia? And how do we apply it to our lives today? How do we think about this? Let me just suggest a few ways that I've had to grapple with. It's when the fear of the America coming for my kids and my grandkids grips my heart more than the fear that my kids or grandkids might not fear God, then Jesus demands that I raise my eyes. And when I'm more likely to sit and stew on government overreach than I am to take action in proclaiming the gospel to my neighbors who don't know Christ, who stand condemned to eternity in hell, then Jesus demands that I raise my eyes. And when I'll squeeze my budget for extra ammo and canned foods and Christmas presents, but I can't squeeze my budget so that part of every paycheck will go to advancing the gospel around the globe. And friends, Jesus calls me and you to raise your eyes. And when I've got more urgency to fight for free speech in this nation than I have the urgency to fight pride in my own heart, Jesus demands that I raise my eyes and that you do the same. Guys, if I think I'm above Peter's error, and if you think you're above Peter's error, we have been deceived. And maybe the biggest lesson coming from Peter here is our need for daily grace. To see our blind spots, to raise our eyes, and to set our mind on the things Act two in our play is a heavy one. And it leads us into act three. Jesus' call. Jesus' call, verses 24 through 28. Let's go back to the scriptures and read again. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In essence, in Jesus' call, what he says is that Jesus' identity cannot be separated from his work. Jesus, as Messiah, must come to suffer and save. You cannot separate those. They're necessarily tied together. And similarly, we cannot separate our identity as followers of Christ from the following. We can't separate our confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, from the call to follow Jesus in discipleship, whatever that may mean. We see that merely saying Jesus is Lord or praying a prayer, or getting baptized as a kid without following Jesus in radical discipleship means we had lip service, not true belief. So Jesus states the call and gives three arguments of why this is clearly the right thing to do. What's the call? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And for, for far too long, guys, the American church is operating under this vision of, if God wants something radical from me, I'm sure he'll let me know. 
If he wants me to be a serious, sold out, all the way kind of Christian, an Adoniram Judson missionary to the East Asia kind of Christian, I'm sure he'll let me know. If he wants me to be a varsity Christian or a committed believer, super serious, I'm sure he'll let me know. But friends, what we consider radical discipleship, Jesus considers normal Bible Christianity. And we should stop wasting our time looking for a special voice from God when we've got an entire Bible full of verses already calling us to it. We got gifts for the body that have been given. You've received gifts, if you're in Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And maybe COVID has been one of those things that's knocked you to the sidelines. And maybe the call to discipleship for you this morning to pick up your cross, to deny yourself and to follow Jesus is to get off the sidelines, get back in the game and start serving the body. First Peter, we read that we've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light so that we would proclaim his excellencies. I referenced this previously about Thanksgiving with family, but I wonder, is this what your discipleship looks like? Say, I'm serving the body, but I'm not proclaiming his excellencies. I mean, the, guy, the guys at work, the ladies at work, they know I'm a Christian, they know I go to church, but are you proclaiming his excellencies or just your religiosity? Maybe you've been blessed monetarily by the Lord. All of us have in various ways. And, and understand, God's blessings on us are not so we can have a bigger house or a nicer car or a better vacation, but so that the gospel can go forth to the ends of the world. Maybe that's how the Holy Spirit's speaking to you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. This is the call for all of us. And Jesus then lays out three supporting arguments for why this should be obvious and clearly understood. He starts out and he says, for whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, the only way to actually find your life is to lose it. So the more you go trying to find your life, the more you're going to lose it. But if you'll just willingly set it aside and lose it, you'll actually find it. I heard story about uh, farmers in Oklahoma in the 1930s. Of course, you know, in 1929 is when the Depression hit. And in 1931, a great drought hit the plains of Oklahoma. The drought continued for years. Many of these farmers, by the end of the 30s, had either gone back to the East Coast trying to find a way to live... Some of them had starved, and others were hanging on by a thread. Part of the issue was they had some poor farming techniques, and so the soil had become unable to sustain the grass that would usually hold some moisture in. And so what was a drought actually was exponentially worse than what it should have been. And so in 1939, there's many Oklahoman farmers who are holding their very last grain in their hands. They've got a choice. They can grind it up for food and eat what they've got and see how far it'll take them and maybe you strike gold later. Or they can take what they've got in their hand, they can go to the field, they can bury it and watch it die and pray for rain. And in the summer of 1939, you know what came? Rain. And they held on to it yeah, they would, they would have ate for a bit. They would have found their life for a season, but then they would have died. They would have held on to their life and in so doing lost their life. But for the farmers who went, as Jesus would say in John 12, that the seed must go into the earth and die before it can bear fruit, they lost their life and in so doing gained life. I wonder if some of you this morning ought to be seeing these blessings from God that you have as kingdom seeds. Every blessing is a kingdom seed. Are you holding on to that seed and clinging to it, white-knuckling it, scared to let it go? 
however great or small it may seem, or are you coming over to the field, putting it down into the earth, feeling the risk and the terror of watching it die, but knowing that's the only way to truly find life? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Second argument Jesus gives, he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So pause, let's just say for a second that, that you rolled the dice and you held on to it and you did strike gold and you gained the whole world. What then? You gain the whole world and lose your soul. As the famous missionary Jim Elliott would say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, give your life to the only thing that matters, the only thing that will bear eternal fruit, knowing Jesus and making him known. I think for many of us, we've thought that the religious good life, how I find my life, is simply that I, that I work hard, I provide for the family, and I try to avoid the big sins. And it's good to work hard, and you ought to do that, and it's good to provide for your family, and you ought to do that, and it's good to avoid the big sins, it's good to avoid all the sins. You ought to do all those things. But there's far more that Jesus has for you. To spill your life and be spilt out for Jesus, knowing him and making him known with whatever kingdom seeds he's given you. John Piper says it this way. He says, oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there's no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 video during the evening, maybe Netflix, we'd say, a couple decades later during quality family time, and lots of fun stuff on the weekend woven around church mostly. This is life for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for more, far more. Friends, you're created for more, far more. The third argument that Jesus gives Find in verse 27. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come and repay each person according to what he's done. I've got a poster in my office of um, the greatest movie ever produced, Gladiator, and across the top is Maximus' famous quote, What we do in life echoes in eternity. This is what Jesus is saying. What you do in life will echo in eternity. And you may confess that Jesus is Lord, but your actions reveal if it's true saving faith or just lip service. And so we sang this morning, in Christ alone my hope is found. That's going to echo in eternity or it won't. The Heidelberg Catechism famously starts out, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it, it answers that I belong, body and soul, and life and death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So I wonder, what is your comfort in life and death? Sure, you come to church on Sunday, you serve in some way, you give in those ways, but is it your comfort in life and death? Christ alone Notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that weak discipleship means in heaven you go from a heavenly mansion on the beach to a cottage in a dirty village. He's not saying a diminished reward. He's not saying you go from a heavenly Corvette to a heavenly Geo Metro. He's not saying diminished blessings. He's saying, you have not denied yourself. You have not taken up your cross. You have not followed me. You have tried to preserve your vision of the good life and your life will be required of you. He's saying, I'm here as Savior right now. And perhaps some of you are hearing this. You're saying, man, I don't know if my life reflects this call to follow Jesus. He's saying, I'm here as Savior now, but I'm coming back. And I won't come back as your Savior, but I'm going to come back as your judge. 
So cry out to me now. Confess me as Lord. Take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me today while you can. Because friends, Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You know, this might be a call to discipleship for you. Peter was right on who Jesus was and had a massive discipleship gap. That may be what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. But Acts, or Matthew 16, 27, Jesus is also saying, this may be a call for you for the first time to confess Jesus as Lord, truly believing he's Lord and to follow him. And I get that may be hard if you've been going to church for a long time. You've been here for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. But what better day to come running to Jesus than today? Say, Jesus, I've, I've given you lip service, but my life has not been there. Friend, what you do in life will echo in eternity. Raise your eyes above these temporal, earthly things. Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. And maybe as you're thinking through these things, you're thinking, man, what does this mean for me? It's a little scary to try and tease out some of these implications. Let me just suggest that just like Peter, you're going to need a double dose of daily grace in order to raise your eyes. So can I just suggest a couple of steps to help us raise our eyes and find God's daily grace? Because I know in my preparation, I've sure sensed my need for it. I hope you do as well. Let me give you four of them. Here's number one. Confess your earthly vision to God. Don't make excuses for it. Just confess it. God, my mind seems so set on the things of man, so easy to focus there, so difficult to focus on your things. I know it is sin. I know it's not what you've called me to. But Jesus, I confess this is where I'm at. I need your help. Number two, give two people permission for exhortation. Who are two people that are around you that know that you're going to struggle to raise your eyes, that you tend to set your mind on the things of earth and not on the things of heaven, on the things of man, on the things of God? Would you reach out to them today? Would you reach out to them before lunch and say, God spoke to me this morning. I want to set my mind on the things of God, not on the things of man, but I'm going to need help. Would you please remind me, Justin, you need to raise your eyes. When you hear me get off on my rabbit trail, whatever my rabbit trail may be, when you see me making those decisions, will you please chase me down and say, Justin, raise your eyes. And let me just say, if you're that person who gets that message at lunch today or you have that conversation this afternoon, do not fail in what you've been charged to do. Reach out to those people. Charge them to raise their eyes. Encourage them. They're asking for your help because they want it. Be a good friend. Third, I'd invite you, memorize Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Memorize the words of Jesus so that when you feel yourself start to go down that trajectory of recalibrating my mind according to the things of man and not the things of God, I've got the scriptures ready to call to mind. No, Justin, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. Fourth, I'd invite you just to read church history. And see the example of saints for thousands of years who have sought a better heavenly city than any earthly city that can be found here. If you don't know where to start, there's a green book in the bookstore called Let the Nations Be Glad. And there's one chapter in it that's phenomenal. It's chapter three. That's a great place to start. Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. It's a green book. Chapter three is a phenomenal place to start and take encouragement from saints who've gone before who've said, I've got something better than this world to live for. So do something for me here. Will we close your Bible, set your notes aside, and just look at me for a second. 
We, um, we're going to take communion here in a, in a minute. Communion, Parkside, is for those who trust in Jesus, their Lord and Savior, who've given their lives to him. And as we go to communion, you fix your eyes on Christ and what he's done. I want to urge you to consider these four steps. But I want you to realize those four steps by themselves won't do anything for you if you don't get your eyes on Jesus. You can go through religious motions. I can go through religious motions all day long. And so communion is a time when we recenter ourselves on the gospel of what Jesus did for us. And I look at him bleeding on the cross for me, suffering for me, rising from the dead to conquer death. As I look at him, my eyes begin to shift away from earthly things and onto heavenly things. So yes, do the steps and review your notes but most importantly, get your eyes on Jesus. So I'm going to read here before I pray from Hebrews 11, where it shares of saints who've gone before. I'm going to pick up in chapter 12 where it points us back to Jesus. And I invite you to close your eyes right here while I read and picture the words that are being read from God's holy scriptures. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Oh, Jesus, we come to you this morning grateful, grateful for your sacrifice, grateful that you went to the cross despising its shame, in light of the joy that was set before you, we ask, Jesus, that you would give us that joy in following you. You would give us grace to raise our eyes, to not fix our mind on the things of earth, but on the things of heaven. We can't do it without you. Oh, we ask for your help. Help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. We pray these things in the name of our suffering, crucified, and risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.